Welcome to the Boxing Size Podcast. This is episode 29, a Q&A session where we're going to be answering your questions around sports science in boxing. We've got a range of different subjects from ice baths for boxing and different recovery methods that we can use. We're going to be talking about the use of sauna suits or sweatsuits for boxing. We're going to also be discussing programming strategies around athletes that can only train one time per day. And then we're going to be discussing about rest times between rounds in sparring. So we've got a range of different subjects to get through. If you're a new viewer to the channel or listening to the podcast, please hit the subscribe button. We're going to uh, start off with the question that we receive quite often. And whenever I post this on Instagram, uh, it gets a, a, a huge response. Are ice baths good for boxing? You're seeing load more athletes, load more boxing, boxers. I think it looks cool on Instagram when somebody's... It's cool, mate. Somebody's... Uh, jumping into an ice bath. What are your thoughts on it uh, in terms of recovery? As always, it's this case of why would you mm. want to jump in a bath of ice cold water? What, what's the purpose of it? Do you know as an athlete or do you know as a coach why you're using that and what mechanisms is it improving? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it alleviating? So I think the use of, of ice baths um, has stemmed from um, the rice principle. So, you know, rest, ice, um, mm. compression, elevation. And ice being used as a tool to reduce swelling acutely. So the theory is if you jump into an ice bath and you make yourself cold, you principally you make your muscles cold. That's different to making your core temperature cold. If you make your muscles cold or your extremities cold, that could potentially decrease the swelling around your muscles. With a reduced swelling, you get reduced pain uh, or sensations of pain, and you might feel a little bit better after it. Whether or not that has a, a performance benefit or a recovery benefit is, a, is another, another question. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to reduce that swelling, reduce that perception of pain after you're out of the bath because when you're in the bath, mm. that is painful. Yeah. Painful in itself. And quite often what we don't do as, as physiologists and thermal physiologists is really um, think about the psychological demands of preparing to get in an ice bath, being in the ice bath and that challenge that that represents and whether or not that's a useful and stressful stimulus. So that's another another thing mm. to consider. The other thing to consider is what temperature should the yeah. bath be at? Because you can just get get your water bucket. You can use a wheelie bin if you really want to. Yeah. Chuck some ice in. Mm. What temperature is that at? I saw a boxer. I don't know whether they're, they're play acting a little bit, but it was like literally like freezing to the point where we really... Yeah. Like rigid. Yeah. And they had to like kind of drag him out of the bath. Yeah. And, and that's not the temperature that to go out for cold water no. immersion. No, absolutely not. And so the idea is not to reduce core body temperature to the mm. point of hypothermia. Mm. It's just to make the extremities cold and mm. induce that, that constrictive effects that will then reduce that swelling. So it'd be an idea to not probably go in because whenever we're saying about raising temperature, yeah. we're on about in like in, in a hot bath. Yeah. We're on about keeping the chest in. Yeah. To do ice baths, you don't want to reduce that core temperature. So would you just go purely lower body? 
uh, yeah, and I think if you see a lot of a lot of people, mm. especially if they're in the wheelings, yeah. they'll just lift themselves out. Yeah, I yeah. think you see a lot of runners do that. Yeah, yeah. They'll be um, just immersed in their mm. lower extremities. Mm. So that's one thing. Another thing is the, the water temperature. Another thing is how long. Yeah. How long do you need? Yeah. How long can you sustain that? How long do you want to be under under stress? I don't think there's any real hard and fast guidelines mm. on this. Clearly, you do want a, a water temperature that's probably less than 10 degrees, but mm. above freezing. Yeah. Top of my mind, around, I think around about 10 degrees is probably okay. And then for how long? Yeah. And that becomes, you know, one of those questions around tolerability. And then how do we know it's having an effect? Mm. So how do we know it's affecting what we're trying to do, which is having a constrictive effect and reducing swelling and edema and those kind of sensations. Yeah. The only really um, thing we know is whether or not there is a performance benefit afterwards. So do we see an improved restoration in, for example, a cat movement jump? Yeah. There's actually or, some data that's just come out where it's actually reduced performance yeah. targets. Um, yeah. Most of the data is like going towards perception yeah. and perceptual yeah. uh, marks of T. Which is which is important because an athlete will have to keep training whether they're physically fatigued or not. Yeah. The question is: is is there something out there better physiologically yeah. than ice baths? Because if it does something perceptual, that's fantastic. Yeah. But if it's if there's something there that gives you perceptual benefits, but also gains in physiological performance yeah. and gains in recovery, which brings us on to probably the next topic, which is which is perfect. A uh, little segue into it is the use of contrast mm -hmm. baths, contrast yeah. showers, yeah. working between hot and cold. Yeah. Uh, and there is some physiological adaptations from that. What kind of responses do, do you get from going between hot and cold? Yeah, just uh, going back on, on one point, the, yeah. the, you've, there is one... There's one thing thinking about recovery mm. and there's another thing that's thinking about optimizing adaptation yeah. and whether or not um, ice baths. And I think the, the evidence for the benefits and negatives is still uh, equivocal. I yeah. think there's, there's, there's no clear consensus one way or the other. Yeah. Some camps leaning one way, some camps leaning the other way. So on the balance of evidence, we can't make a, a strong recommendation for, mm. for one or the or the other but i do think there's probably more evidence suggesting that mm. cold water immersion blunts adaptations okay especially strength adaptations but we just got to keep us as eye on the on the scientific literature literature yeah. for that and the other thing is um, like you mentioned that that perceptual benefit so like with most recovery methods usually n no harm in applying them in yeah. that there's usually no meaningful decrease in performance or you know causing any undue harm to anyone from undertaking a recovery method so if you think about all the recovery methods that you could use low intensity running uh, foam rolling massage maybe a little blood flow restriction yeah. all these different different types of, of recovery that you can use there's no real harm in using them. So the question then becomes, well, does any of them give you a performance benefit or truly help you improve adaptation to what you're trying to, to do? Mm. And then what's the perceptual benefit and how do you feel after you've used that? Because yeah. if you feel great after you've undertaken a recovery protocol, then that's going to probably have a beneficial effect in mm. what you're trying to do uh, in the next session. 
So one of the ways that we found and some of the literature backs this up and actually some of the bathing protocols that are hundreds, if not centuries of, of years old is contrast yeah. bathing, where you switch in temperature. You might do a period of either hot water immersion or a period of sauna mm. and then switch and get a, a cold shower. Yeah. Or it might be a jacuzzi and then a cold shower. Yeah. Or it might be shower, plunge pool, mm. and then a hot room yeah. if you're like in a, in a spa and, and just switching between those multiple, multiple times. And that makes athletes feel absolutely amazing. Yeah. How long would you say to expose yourself to heat and then to the cold? When I remember it was, because you got me doing it with uh, yeah. Kel Brook when yeah. we was... Uh, out in Fort Ventura, we went to a spa and people must have been thinking that we're mad because we're just like <laughs> yeah. literally doing a circuit and yeah. it were like something like three minutes in sauna, yeah. then back to moderate, back to steam room, yeah. into the cold plunge. But the cold plunge was only like literally Short time. 30 seconds, yeah. which I was quite glad about. <laughs> it's cold. But yeah, so, so it's, it's majority like towards heat exposure yeah, and then a short, sharp, Short, right. sharp dip. Dip. Yeah. What kind of response does that does that give you? Why is it so predominant heat compared to cold exposure? That cold exposure f is not there to do anything physiologically. Mm. It, it's just there as a, a as a perception. Okay. The heat is there for the for that relaxation yeah. purpose. So you, your muscles just just feel relaxed. I'm, I'm sure there's some hormonal changes as well. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head yeah. what, the, what they might be. Um, I do know that's perhaps some changes in an increase in parasympathetic nervous system activity and a decrease in sympathetic. So you are getting that um, general relaxation and a, and a decrease in, mm. in stressfulness from, yeah. from doing that, which then in turn leads into that uh, improvement in perception mm. and feeling feeling good from it. Yeah. So when you go in the heat, you've got muscle relaxation, mm. makes you feel good anyway. I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've got some um, particularly strong hormonal releases yeah. from that. But yeah, the, the plunge or the, or the cold is, ju is just there to give you that contrast that when you go back in the heat, mm. then it, it just makes you feel great. Yeah. I think there's a lot. I think even though the like those contrast protocols are have been practiced for centuries, mm -hmm. the scientific literature and understanding is probably not caught up caught with up, that yeah. as much yet. I only know a, a, a spattering of of protocols that are out there. Yeah, um, when I've done it, I did it recently with um, Lerone, uh, where literally we're in the sauna for five minutes, get out, do the cold cold shower. Yeah. Back into back into the sauna. What I found was that the tolerance to the heat was a lot better. Like yeah. whenever I get in sauna, it's like after five minutes, yeah. I'm like thinking, oh god, I want to get want to get out or whatever. I think like the cold. I think it it maintains your core temperature rather than you going in sauna for like like say 10, 15 minutes. You get into end and you're thinking, oh, yeah. and that and that that heat stress can end up being quite draining, oppressive. Yeah, yeah, rather than like with, with that uh, cold exposure, it actually maintains that core temperature so that heat stress isn't as... Yeah, yeah. I think probably what it does if we if we looked at where we were losing heat from, heat mm. balance and things like that, it, it, there's, you get a rapid change in, yeah. in skin temperature. So when you're in the sauna, mm. you'll have blood flow to your... Uh, you'll have vasodilation and then mm. you'll have blood flow to your periphery. So your skin mm. temperature goes up. 
Yeah. When you get in the plunge pool, suddenly you've got a massive temperature contrast against the skin. You're going to have a lot of heat dissipation mm. because of that. And that's going to keep that skin temperature down so that when you get back into the, um, the sauna or in the next hot environment, you've got that little buffer to yeah. increase skin temperature again before you start feeling a little bit too hot yeah. and just repeat that cycle. So any athletes or coaches listening to this and let's say they haven't got access to sauna or plunge pool or anything, what's a, a very simple and basic kind of shower protocol that they could do and when should they do it? Well, the protocol is it would be roughly two minutes heat mm-hmm. or one minute heat. Don't need to start super, super hot. Mm. in the temperature just crank it up and then turn it down so it's a little bit cooler yeah. for another minute mm-hmm. and you should be able to do it a minute I'm not, yeah. we're not talking about Wim Hof type yeah. <laughs> exposures here yeah. and then back up a little bit higher yeah. for another minute or two yeah. and then back down try and get it a little bit cooler yeah, for yeah. a minute and you're just repeating those cycles yeah. always start on hot always finish on hot that cycle can last around about 10 minutes links in quite nicely to the next question is whether boxers should wear sweatsuits or sauna suits during boxing running everything like that something that we've kind of covered quite a lot on Mm -hmm. on on instagram quite a few times always gets a a response where you've got probably the old school kicking off and saying that we've used them for years we've got the new school that are celebrating it saying this is (laughs) this is what i've been trying to tell boxers what is the general kind of thoughts on sauna suit and sweatsuit usage in boxing yeah when you wear a sweatsuit it's a a full barrier to heat dissipation so if you think of our avenues of of heat loss the major avenue of heat loss is sweat mm-hmm. when you're wearing a sweatsuit there is no avenue for sweat loss especially if you've got the hood up yeah. apart from <laughs> your face, face yeah. that's it so that heat loss mechanism is redundant. So you can't lose heat as effectively as you could do. You also can't lose heat convectively because you've got no airflow against mm. the, the skin. So that's another way of heat loss gone. And we don't really lose heat through, through conduction yeah. at all. Radiation is going to be minimal as well. We're stopping heat being dissipated to the environment. Depending on the intensity of, of exercise, which when you're wearing a sauna suit, traditionally it's, it's plodding, mm-hmm. really. Reduction in heat loss combined with metabolic heat production, because we produce heat, we're very inefficient, we produce heat when we produce energy to do mechanical work, is going to raise body temperature. Mm. That increase in body temperature will then stimulate a sweat response. When we reach a certain temperature threshold, we have an onset of, of sweating and we have an increase in the rate of, of sweat. So when you're performing exercise in a sauna suit, you'll get hot relatively quickly and then start sweating a lot. Mm. So that is the, the, the main physiological and thermophysiological responses to wearing mm. a sweatsuit. Now the question becomes, why would you want to do that? Mm. so really really the only thing you are doing when you're running in a sweatsuit is increasing core temperature and increasing sweat production you have cardiovascular responses to that as well so we reduce that increase in core temperature you'll have vasodilation 
to principally to the skin surface to help dissipate heat, which is not happening. Mm -hmm. So you'll probably get an increase in cardiac output either through an increase in stroke volume, so the amount mm. of blood that's pumped out in one beat. Yeah, elevates your heart rate. Or an elevation in heart rate. Yeah. And it's normally an elevation of heart rate at lower intensities that will increase cardiac output. Yeah. So you get those, those three things, really. Increase in core temperature, increase in sweat production, increase in um, cardiac demand. Mm. Now, those are acute variables. Why would we want to increase core temperature? Why would we want to increase sweat rate? Why would we want to increase cardiac output? Mm. What we're not getting realistically is any change in fat burning, mm -hmm. which is why people use yeah. sweat suits. I think that they're using it for. And in fact, when you get hotter, you will decrease the amount of fat that you utilize and you'll predominantly use carbohydrates yeah. and that is probably due to an increase in hormones like uh, adrenaline or cortisol, whereby we will then preferentially use carbohydrate as a fuel. And the other thing is if anyone has actually looked at the amount of fat that anyone burns during exercise, it's absolutely minimal. Yeah. So when people talk about, oh, I'm going on a fat, fat burning session, it's, really, it's literally grams mm. that you use. Yeah. And that's determined by intensity. So when you're wearing a sweatsuit, because cardiovascular demand is relatively higher, because you've got a higher core temperature, because your sweat rate's higher, the intensity of exercise is less. Yeah. So because it's less, that potential for you to burn energy is also less. And also because of the dehydration from increased sweat rate, That'll reduce the intensity for lo for longer, so at the back end of the session, yeah, intensity will have to be reduced. That's it. So if you're not replacing those fluids that you're losing, mm. intensity will be reduced further because of that potential dehydration. Yeah. Now, what people do confuse an increase in energy expenditure with is an increase in heart rate. Mm. So just because there's an increase in heart rate doesn't mean that you're burning more energy. The increase in heart rate is evident when you're wearing a sauna suit because the heart has to work harder to pump blood to the periphery, mm. not because you're demanding more energy. The mechanical demands are those energetic demands that are required from running mm. at that intensity. Nothing else apart from maybe the heart beating a little bit faster than the, en yeah. the energy that's required for that, or maybe a little bit more energy from the, the brain yeah. to be able to process some of these extra physiological demands. It's interesting because that's something that your heart rate monitor doesn't tell you. It literally tells you your heart rate's this, yeah. your calorie expenditure is this. Yeah. So they'll look at the session and they'll think, oh, we've burnt way more calories. But actually it's the, it's the mechanical demands that is what's going to burn them more, more calories, Absolutely. basically. So all your heart rate monitor is doing mm. is it's applying an equation mm. that <clears throat> relates to a percentage of maximum heart rate, and this is just a generic equation, yeah. to oxygen uptake or energy expenditure, depending on um, how the manufacturer has, has calculated yeah. this. And what they've done is they've just gone, well, at 80% heart rate max, mm -hmm. then the energy expenditure is equivalent to, to this. Yeah. So when you're at 80% heart rate max, you're doing this amount of calories. Yeah. And it assumes that you're going to be doing it in a normal temperate environment when yeah. there's no environmental influences. It's doing its job. It's just that where people interpret that data in a way that is um, in, in a setting that is artificial 
to what it's intended yeah. for because we're adding that environmental stress. Mm. Unless you know what your energy expenditure is yeah. through indirect calorimetry, if you've done mm. some gas analysis. Yeah, which most people won't have. Exactly. Yeah. Then you won't know. No. Really interesting. Is there positives for wearing sauna suits? Absolutely. Is there, is there a, a way that you'd say, right, this is where you'd wear a sauna suit? Yeah, absolutely. There's always benefits from from heat. And whenever you comply heat in, in your training in a sensible and the right uh, place, it's, it's, it's always going to be mm. bene- beneficial, in my opinion. Yeah. The things that you need to, to, to think about is if you're getting hot, and you're getting sweaty, mm. then you're probably going to be stimulating an expansion in plasma volume, so the watery part of the blood. Yeah. That increase in plasma volume is going to have uh, beneficial adaptations on cardiovascular stability in normal environments mm. because there's, there is uh, more blood volume, or there's more, there's more plasma volume, so there's a, a greater total amount of fluid within the body that can help regulate blood pressure or defend against fluid losses yeah. or dissipate heat to the mm. environment and just allow the inner workings of the body just function better. That's yeah. why we say, you know, be hydrated and, and drink yeah, yeah. and drink well. That's one of the reasons why we, why we say that. So in the short term, that's going to have a benefit. So plasma volume expansion usually takes around about five to six days and mm. then it starts to, to level off if not come back come back to normal. Mm. If you can get hot and sweaty for a prolonged period of time, then you're going to get some thermoregulatory adaptations, such as an increased rate of sweat, um, an earlier onset of sweat, and that will help you in your training sessions Mm. because you'll be able to control body temperature better. Mm. So you won't feel as hot, so you can push on as hard. There won't be as much demand on your cardiovascular system to regulate things like blood blood flow to the periphery Mm. or uh, blood pressure things like that. Mm. So it becomes easy for your body to adapt to hotter environments mm. or intensity of, of exercise whereby you've got to work at a higher body temperature. In terms of refining mm. how you apply that in training, you need to make a trade-off between when you're applying heat, how long you're applying heat and how you're doing it. Yeah. So if you are wearing a sauna suit and you're going out on long runs, what's that taking away from your training program? Yeah. Are you having to sacrifice some intensity? Are you having to drop a strength training session because mm. of that? Are you adding extra mechanical load into your training that you could probably do without? Have you got any injury risks that might mm. be that might flare up because of that long, slow plodding that you might do? Because it's certainly hard to combine a sauna suit with sprinting. So you'd probably go for more low intensity yeah. work. Why would you want to apply heat on low intensity work? Otherwise, you're gonna get too hot too quickly. It's also it's it's harder to do, isn't it? You're gonna if you if you try and apply heat to a quality session, mm. you're always gonna reduce the intensity of that quality yeah. session. Mm. Plus, if you're wearing a sauna suit, how are you supposed to create that the mechanical forces that you need to to yeah. run at high intensity? So, so you can get some more kind of passive adaptations from doing the same session, kind of low intensity with a sauna suit. Yeah, well, if you're if you're active, it's it's not like a a passive well, intensity. Well, it's like adding adding a percentage to your yeah low intensity sessions. Yeah, yeah. So there's that is a potential way to do it mm. to en- enhance your recovery session as well. Yeah, yeah. And again, it comes down to that that people's perceptions of 
do you think this is is beneficial? And I think for most people, they the, the would feel some kind of benefit from using a sauna suit. If you if you're hot but not too hot, and that can make you feel better. If you feel like you've 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 sweat a lot, that can also make you feel better. And plus, you get that kind of vicarious benefit from knowing that well, other people use sauna suits. You know, yeah. that box uses that box uses it. So I'm using a sauna suit as well. Mm. So I'm going to get the benefits that they're getting as well. Yeah. In a nutshell, probably don't use sauna suits for all these sessions, especially when you're looking to try and maximize intensity. So that's your normal boxing sessions, your conditioning sessions, your strength sessions. You don't want to be using sauna suit. Yeah. Whereas it can be used as a as a tool to help boost recovery and get some extra percentages out of your yeah. low intensity sessions. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So next question, how would you program for people training one time per day? We're quite lucky at Boxing Science because we've got a range of different athletes that are full-time professionals. So we can train them twice a day, but there's obviously lower-level professionals or, or amateurs that don't have, have the luxury of being a full-time athlete. They either have to get up really early in the morning and train before work, and then obviously have to drag themselves to training after work. So sometimes people can't do that and haven't got the commitment levels to be able to train twice a day. So training once a day is something that I get asked quite a lot, especially around amateur boxing, young athletes, because they're not likely to train before school. They're going in and, and all their strength and conditioning has to be kind of integrated into into the boxing training. The advice would be is to try and integrate that as, as, as much as possible into the training so you can do stuff like movement and mobility as part of the boxing warm-up. All boxers have to warm up when they're going into the training rather than just going running around and yeah. doing a few arm circles and a few karaoke's here and there. You know, that's what a general boxing warm-up is and then they go into shadow boxing. You know, doing your mobility warm-up there and then that's part of your strength conditioning right there. Doing some plyometrics, incorporating that, incorporating that into your warm-up and then you've got your plyometrics ticked off. And then instead of like your circuit at the end of the boxing training, uh, you can do a strength circuit some days, you can do a core circuit another, then you can do conditioning circuit and everything. That is probably what my, my main advice would be around that. There's a, there's a good video on, on Boxing Science YouTube channel, um, Strength Conditioning for Amateur Boxing, which were really popular, got a really good response and talking a little bit more in depth how you'd integrate that. Let's talk about like running and high intensity running. Often get the question of how many times should you run per week, high intensity wise? What is the minimum amount of dosage that you'd give an athlete in terms of times per week and also reps so for somebody that is struggling to, to cram it all in basically? Yeah. Well, first thing I'd say just to back up what your point around, around boxing training, the most a really intelligent thing to do is to look at your day. How is your day structured and find the opportunities in the day mm. to try and get in some of the, the lower level S and S and C stuff maybe. Yeah. And then when you know, you've got a, a, a window to try and train, do exactly what you just said there. Yeah. So a lot of it is a case of right. Let me have a look at my day. Let me have a look at my week and go mm. here are the opportunities to to, to yeah. get those in and be really because you've got to be really optimal yeah. about about what you're doing. In terms of conditioning, 
we need to think of all about first of all well what are we going to be doing mm. in conditioning and if you've got an amateur or somebody who has a limited time to spend training we need to think about what is the best way to spend time yeah what is the what is going to be the session or the variation of sessions that are going to give someone who's time restricted the most benefits because mm-hmm. and, and quite often we'll have to look short term either so rather than thinking in, in four year cycles and thinking long term it might be that we just think okay what does this this six or eight or ten week block look like and mm-hmm. and how can we get the best out of an athlete we've got a range of different sessions let's take an amateur boxer for example yeah. we've got a range of different sessions in our hit handbook that are perfect for amateur boxers We've got some sessions that are designed around amateur boxing and performance as well. So there's fight hit mm. specific yeah. sessions and they're absolutely ideal. Yeah. Only about 15, 20 minutes long. Perfect. Yeah. They're absolutely mm. perfect. So in terms of like thinking about how, where you're going to put in some conditioning and how long you need to put aside for that, using those to go right, I know they're like 15, 20 minutes plus a, a warm up. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, and then a little bit of time just recovering after this. Mm. We're not saying they're easy sessions. Yeah, yeah. So you're talking like 30 minutes mm. for that session. Yeah. And that, that should be like kind of like the goal. And you can get some really great stuff done in, in that 30 minutes. Yeah. So how many times should be, you be doing that per week? Mm. One mm. session would be able to help you maintain mm. fitness. So if you've already got a good level of fitness and you're looking to maintain that, Scheduling one of those fight-specific hit sessions a week will enable you to maintain that. Yeah. Two sessions a week will enable some small incremental improvements. Yeah. Absolutely fine. Three sessions a week will then push you into those accelerated fitness adaptations. Now, I think once you get to three times a week, it might then be having to make some allowances in the training program, the training and, program yeah. and choosing what you can put in and what you can take yeah. out. Two sessions a week is usually manageable. Yeah. For most people, it will fit in, depending on fitting around boxing. It'll fit around a bit of strength training. So if, yeah. if you think you've got two boxing sessions a week, uh, two conditioning sessions mm. a week, mm. four sessions in there, mm. it's probably realistic for, for most people to train. Yeah. I'd, another two strength training sessions on there if you can six days a week yeah yeah it's quite doable yeah that's probably for people that are looking to just like kind of keep fit but yeah. obviously boxers they probably need to be in in the gym at least four five times a week so Absolutely. then it's like then you're looking at actually integrating your strength and your conditioning into the boxing yeah. and that might be doing doing the boxing and then going go maybe doing the run maybe doing the strength yeah after that and like you mentioned as well mm. there we've got red zone circuits yeah yeah so like say one of those if you're if you've got boxing training three times a week yeah there and you want it to add a circuit off the back yeah. of that adding one red zone circuit you get some strength and fitness demands from that and have and having two fight specific hit sessions yeah. that stand alone yeah then that's going to put you in that three yeah, three sessions a week yeah. and it's and it's going to accelerate fitness. Yeah, definitely. So final question of the podcast. I've been looking forward to this one. 30 seconds versus 60 seconds rest between rounds during sparring. I know gyms are 
stick to one minute and the gym starts to stick to 30 seconds. Now, what are your thoughts around that in terms of rest? Is there any kind of improved physical performance from a shorter rest time? Or uh, does it actually limit performance? Well, my weird mind goes, why not longer? Mm. So if you're manipulating the recovery duration from 30 to 60 seconds, you, you're doubling it. Yeah. So why not go, why not think go from 60 seconds to two minutes as well? Through spanning the work. <laughs> <laughs> the question that would automatically pop up is if I said, why not go longer than that? Someone might go, well, why? why? Mm. And that's the perfect question to start yeah. with. Why would you want to have 30 seconds rest? Why would you want to have 60 seconds rest? Why would you want to have a two-minute rest in yeah. there? And in fact, you know, some, sometimes there probably will be maybe two minutes rest, you know, yeah. if, if someone's got to change something up or they've yeah. got to adjust something or they've got to change, change their the headguard, change spine partners and what have you. And then the other thing you're thinking about is rather than thinking about recovery duration, start with, well, what's the purpose of that round? Yeah. Because if you're thinking about technical sparring, mm. there's going to be a focus of a particular... Mm of a particular round and you and the coach is going to want their boxer to work on a specific aspect of their performance yeah or they're going to ask the partner sparring partner to perform in a particular way starting with well what's the purpose yeah of that round or of that whole sparring session so that's the thinking about the, the technical and tactical demands mm. then think about well what physical demands is that imposing yeah and then think about what physiological and psychological demand mm. that physical demand is requiring. So what responses are required to make us cope with that demand. And then you can start to think about recovery. Yeah. And whether or not that 30, so if you take a 30 second recovery, that is going to undoubtedly, in most situations anyway, add to the physiological demand. Okay. That's going to add to the physical demand. And then what's that going to do to the tactical and technical requirements? Mm. Is it going to impose demands that uh, are required? Mm. So are you practicing a particular movement set, perhaps practicing uh, a little bit of movement or some defensive qualities or throwing combinations under fatigue? Really, whichever way you look at it, it comes as, well, what's the point? Yeah. Obviously, making it 30 seconds instead of 60 seconds, when they get to a fight, obviously, they're going to be a lot fitter. So, or feeling fitter or feeling more recovered in between the rounds. Now, what I'd say is that the 30 seconds will increase the physical demands. Yeah. So, then that will limit the intensity. With the minute rest, it's less physically demanding really it can be increasing physical demands because you've rested so then you can increase that intensity and you can get better fitness adaptations from from that obviously the the quality of the spa will be better because you're going to be less fatigued especially to the latter stages but i think that there's a place for for them both because like, like i said like because it increases physical demands it's going to be psychologically tougher so it's in, in, increasing that um, concentration what you said like it's, it's really good because it's what I had in mind for this question as well. Why not increase the rest time as well? So you increase that rest time, that makes it physically less demanding. So then that increases the intensity of the, of the round, potentially increase the quality of the sparring as well. 
and that's probably similar to why you'd get fresh sparring in uh, and get fresh uh, get two or three different sparring partners as well again just challenging them in different ways now something that was quite interesting that I talked about with um, Fabio Wardley the other day I asked it because he did two or three camps with Usyk yeah. and I asked him you know what was the what was the craziest thing that that they did it was like obviously they, they do the blocks they do the mental training stuff like that after the sparring which was uh, interesting but something that he said that really got me thinking is that they change the sparring every single day in terms of like the volume and the intensity um, they didn't tell him until like Fabio basically asked they were just basically throwing him in there some days it'd be like two minute rounds maybe even one minute rounds and then some days it'd be five minute rounds so the volume and intensity changes a lot now if we think about our conditioning training think about our strength training we manipulate the volume and intensity all the time in boxing how often is that done mm-hmm. and we're working on three minute three minute rounds all the time in sparring if you're just working on three minute rounds all the time where's that kind of manipulation of volume and intensity obviously you you can manipulate the rest times. Why not manipulate the, the sparring times as well? Sparring for one minute rounds to really, really work at them, really high intensities. Now, I wouldn't say, obviously it's got to be under supervision for five minute rounds because when you fatigue, that's more likely when you start taking shots and increase the risk of, of concussion and, and stuff like that. So you do got to, you've got to be careful with that. But that lower volume, uh, sorry, that longer volume of work, that lower intensity work, can provide a good foundation for your camp and then keep mixing the, the high-intensity work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You're smiling because you're thinking that's a great idea. No, I am. This was what I was yeah. going to say because we manip- you can manipulate the same variables as we do would do mm. with conditioning. Yeah. So you can manipulate the intensity. You can manipulate the duration. You can mm. manipulate the duration of recovery. You can... Uh, change the number of rounds. Mm. You can change the sparring partner. Yeah. You can have a break. So change the series if you want. So you could do three. You mm. could do three rounds, mm. then have a five or ten minute break. Mm. Then do another three rounds. Mm. So that's adding adding series into that. Could change the type of shot that you throw. Mm. So if you're doing a five minute round, then to reduce uh, to improve the safety of that, mm. it could be you can only throw a jab. Yeah. Yeah. Can only jab we're, we're not encouraging people to go and do doghouse <laughs> no. Mayweather style, no. but yeah, make it making it a more a more technical yeah. thing, and that obviously doing that over five minutes will increase concentration and, yeah. and stuff like Absolutely. that. So yeah, it is it's interesting. Probably got a few people kind of scratching their heads and thinking about how Hopefully. they can manipulate the sparring. But yeah. you think about that that intensity, and we were I was talking with Tommy just before. Uh, film, filming this podcast kind of intensity curve that he created yep. through like kind of punch outputs yep. like what is the most intense 10 seconds mm-hmm. of a fight is that actually replicated in sparring and the only way that you probably can go for it and, and, and replicate that most intense 10 30 seconds 60 seconds is shortening the duration of the spar and that's really exposing athletes to probably what the demands are in boxing because you don't spar the way that you fight mm-hmm. you know when you go for a fight and you've got your athlete, you've got somebody hurt you're going to step it up yeah. so likewise the opponent's going to step it up if they hurt you as well so they, you've got to try and expose 
the athletes to that kind of level of intensity in a, in a safe way. So yeah, I think I think that's a, a great kind of topic conversation. Something that probably you'd have to speak to boxing coaches about, and and a lot of boxing coaches will be listening to this, and they can decide what to do with that. That them thoughts, you know, that's that's something for them to to implement and, and and work it in a way that works for them. I think it's definitely interesting when you're looking at the the physiological adaptations that you can get from manipulating the rounds in in sparring. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this podcast episode. Thank you very much, Alan, for your wisdom and your knowledge. If you enjoyed the podcast and you're not a subscriber yet, please hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on any future content. And I'll hopefully see you on the next episode of the Boxing Science Podcast.